guys welcome back so we have two chapters to do today 26 and 27 uh, after yesterday's finding out that Tom Robinson is in fact dead he was killed by the guards at the prison after trying to escape and take matters into his own hands um, and then we found we saw Atticus go to Helen Robinson's house um, with both the kids in the car uh, not not Scout but Dill and Jim um, and as they drove past the Yule's house, we saw Yule yell some obscenities at them. Um, so we're going to start with chapter 26 and then we'll read 27. Um, don't forget to take your notes. Uh, we'll take a break after the, this, obviously will be spring break coming up. Um, and so we won't be doing any reading until after spring break. We'll finish, finish chapters 28 through 31. when we get back, uh, we're a little behind schedule, but I'm okay with that. It's not anyone's fault, but the COVID. So, um, when we get back, we will be watching the movie and after we read all the chapters and taking a test of some sort, um, things will look a little different when we get back, but it'll be okay. We'll make this all work. So, all right, chapter 26, here we go. School start, started and so did our daily trips past the Radley place. Jem was in the seventh grade and went to high school beyond the grammar school building. I was now in the third grade and our routines were so different. I only walked to school with Jem in the mornings and saw him at mealtimes. He went out for football, but was too slender and too young yet to do anything but carry the team water buckets. This he did with enthusiasm. Most afternoons, he was seldom home before dark. The Radley place had ceased to terrify me, but it was no less gloomy, no less chilly under its gray oaks, and no less uninviting. Mr. Nathan Radley could still be seen on a clear day walking to and from town. We knew Boo was there, for the same old reason. Nobody seen him carried out yet. I sometimes felt a twinge of remorse when passing by the old place, ever having taken part in what must have been sheer torment to Arthur Radley. What reasonable recluse wants children peeping through his shutters, delivering greetings on the end of a fishing pole, wandering to his, in his collards at night. And yet I remembered. Two Indian head pennies, chewing gum, soap dolls, a rusty metal, a broken watch and chain. Jim must have put them away somewhere. I stopped and looked at the tree one afternoon. The trunk was swelling around its cement patch. The patch itself was turning yellow. We'd almost seen him a couple times, a good enough score for anybody. But I still looked for him each time I went by. Maybe someday we'd, we'd see him. I imagined how it would be when it happened. He would just be sitting there in the sewing, swing when I came along. How do you do, Mr. Arthur, I would say, as if I'd seen it every afternoon of my life. Evening, Jean Louise, he would say, as if he had said it every afternoon of his life. Right pretty spell we're having, isn't it? Yes, sir, right pretty, I would say, and go on. It was only a fantasy. We would never see him. He probably did go out whenever the moon was down and gaze upon Miss Stephanie Crawford. I'd have picked somebody else to look at, but that was his business. He would never gaze at us. Um, you can, again, if you're taking notes on Scout here, this is a huge uh, change, shift in who she is and what's, um, how, she's, how she's seeing Boo Radley. Um, you can tell that she's definitely growing up and becoming less imaginative and more realistic. So make sure you're taking some notes here. You aren't starting that again, are you, said Atticus, one night as I expressed a stray desire just to have one good look at Boo Radley before I died. If you are, I'll tell you right now to stop it. I'm too old to go chasing you off the Radley property. Besides, it's dangerous. You might get shot. You know Mr. Nathan shoots at every shadow he sees. Even shadows that leave size four bare footprints. You were lucky not to be killed. I hushed that in there. At the same time, I marveled at Atticus. 
This was the first he had let us know that he knew a lot more about something that we thought than we thought he knew. And it had happened years ago. Not only last summer, no, summer before last, when time was playing tricks on me. I must remember to ask Jim. So many things had happened to us. Boo Radley was the least of our fears. Atticus said he didn't see how anything else could happen, that things had a way of settling down, and after enough time passed, people would forget that Tom Robinson's existence was ever brought to their attention. Perhaps Atticus was right, but the events of the summer hung over us like a smoke like smoke in a closed room. The adults in Maycomb never discussed the case with Jem and me. It seemed that they discussed it with their children, and their attitude must have been that neither of us could help having Atticus for a parent, so their children must be nice to us in spite of him. The children would never have thought that up on them for themselves. Had our classmates been left to their own devices, Jem and I would have had several swift, satisfying fistfights apiece and then ended the matter for good. As it was, we were compelled to hold our heads high and be respect, respectively a gentleman and a lady. In a way, it was like the era of Miss Henry Lafayette DuBose, without all her yelling. There was one odd thing, though, that I never understood. In spite of Atticus's shortcoming as a parent, shortcomings as a parent, People were con content to re-elect him to the state legislature that year, as usual, without opposition. I came to the conclusion that people were just peculiar. I withdrew from them and never thought about them until I was forced to. I was forced to one day at school. Once a week, we had a current events period. Each child was supposed to clip out an item from a newspaper, absorb its contents, and reveal them to the class. This practice allegedly overcame a variety of evils. Standing in front of his fellows encouraged good posture and gave child poise. Delivering a short talk made him word conscience, conscious. Learning his current event strengthened his memory. Being singled out made him more than ever anxious to return to the group. The idea was profound, but as usual, Makem didn't. It Makem it didn't work very well. In the first place, few rural children had access to newspapers, so the burden of current events was borne by the town children, convincing the bus children more deeply than the that than the that the town children got all the attention anyway. The rural children, who could, usually brought clippings from what they called the grit paper, a publication spurious in the eyes of Mrs. Miss Gates, our teacher. Why she frowned when a child recited from the grit paper, I never knew, but in some way it was associated with liking fiddling, eating syrupy biscuits for lunch, being a holy roller, singing Sweetly Sings, the donkey, and pronouncing it donkey, all of which the state paid teachers to discourage. Even so, not many of the children knew what a current event was. Little Chuck Little, a hundred years old in his knowledge of cows and their habits, was halfway through an un Uncle Natural story when Miss Gates stopped him. Charles, this is not a current event. This is an advertisement. Cecil Jacobs knew what one was, though. When his turn came, he went from the front of the room and began, Old Hitler. Adolf Hitler, Cecil, said Miss Gates. One never begins with old anybody. Yes, ma'am, he said. Well, old Adolf Hitler has been prosecuting the prosecuting Cecil. No one, Miss Gates, it says here. Well, anyway, old Adolf Hitler has been after the Jews, and he, he's putting them in prisons, and he's taking away all their property, and he won't let any of them out of the country, and he's washing all the feeble-minded, and... Washing the feeble-minded? Yes, ma'am, Miss Gates. I reckon they don't have sense enough to wash themselves. I don't reckon an idiot could keep himself clean. Well, anyway, Hitler started a program to round up all the half-Jews, too, and he wants to register them in case they might want to come cause them any trouble. And I think that this is a bad thing, and that's my current event. Very good, Cecil, said Miss Gates, puffing. Cecil returned to his seat. You have to remember that over across the pond, um, World War II has not happened yet, but Hitler is rising to power. So this is current events. And, and it shows you here that they, you know, they knew about this. This is something that wasn't a secret. 
They knew what, what Hitler was doing over across the seas. A hand went up in the back of the room. Uh, how can they do that? Who do what? Asked Miss Gates patiently. I mean, how can Hitler just put a lot of folks in a pen like that? Looks like the government would stop him, said the owner of the, of, the, of the hand. Hitler is the government, said Miss Gates, and seizing an opportunity to make education dynamic, she went to the board blackboard. She printed democracy in large letters. Democracy, she said. Does anybody have a definition? Us, somebody said. I raised my hand, remembering an old campaign slogan Atticus once told me about. What do you think it means, Jean Louise? Equal rights for all, spe special privileges for none, I quoted. Very good, Jean Louise, very good. Miss Gates smiled. In front of a democracy, she wrote, we are a, now class, say it all together, we are a democracy. We said it. Then Miss Gates said, that's the difference between America and Germany. We are a democracy, and Germany is a dictatorship. Dictatorship, she said. Over here, we don't believe in persecuting anybody. Persecution comes from people who are prejudiced. Prejudiced, she announced clearly. There are no better people in the world than the Jews, and why Hitler doesn't think so is a mystery to me. An inquiring soul in the middle of the room said, Why don't they like the Jews, you reckon, Miss Gates? I don't know, Henry. They contribute to every society they live in, and most of all, they are deeply religious people. Hitler's trying to do away with religion, so maybe he doesn't like them for that reason. Cecil spoke up. Well, I don't know for certain, he said. They're supposed to change money or something, but that ain't no cause to persecute them. They're white, ain't they? Miss Gates said, when you get to high school, Cecil, you'll learn that the Jews have been persecuted since the beginning of history, even driven out of their own country. It's one of the most terrible stories in history. Time for arithmetic, children. As I had never liked arithmetic, I spent the period looking out the window. Um, quick pause here to think about why Harper Lee would, would include this section where they're all like, well, why are they persecuting the Jews? They're white. Um, and, you know, Hitler's not, why is Hitler doing this? It's terrible. It's wrong. Um, what do you think might be ironic here? I just want you to think about that. That is one of the questions in the, in the book. But be thinking about that one. It might be ironic there. I said, okay, the only time, we're back on 246. The only time I ever saw Atticus scowl was when Elmer Davis would give us the latest on Hitler. Atticus would snap off the radio and say, hmm. I asked him once why he was impatient with Hitler, and Atticus said, because he's a maniac. This would not do, I mused, as the class proceeded with the sums. One maniac and millions of German folks. Looked to me like they'd shut Hitler in a pen instead of letting him shut them up. There was something else wrong. I would ask my father about it. I did, and he could not possibly answer my question because it's not, he did not know the answer. But it's okay to hate Hitler. It's not, he said. It's not okay to hate anybody. Atticus, I said, there's something I don't understand. Miss Gates said it was awful Hitler doing like he does. She got real red in the face about it. Well, I should think she would. But, yes, nothing, sir. I went away, not sure if I could explain to Atticus what was on my mind. Not sure that I could clarify what I was feeling, what was only a feeling. Perhaps Jim could provide an answer. Jim understood school things better than Atticus. Jim was worn out from a day's water carrying. There were at least 12 banana peels on the floor by his bed, surrounding an empty milk bottle. What's you stuffing for, I asked. Coach says if I can gain 25 pounds by a year after, I can ne next I can play. He said, that's the quickest way. This is the quickest way. If you don't throw it all up, Jim, I said, I want to ask you something. Shoot. He put down his book and stretched his legs. Miss Gates is a nice lady, ain't she? Why, sure, said Jim. I liked her when I was in her room. Well, she hates Hitler a lot. What's wrong with that? Well, she went on today about how bad it was treating him, him treating the Jews like that. Jim, it's not right to persecute anybody, is it? I mean, have mean thoughts about anybody, even if, even, is it? Gracious no, Scout, what's eating you? Well, coming out of the courthouse that night, Miss Gates was, 
she was going down the steps in front of us. You must have not seen her. She was talking with Stephanie Crawford. I heard her say it's time somebody taught them a lesson. They were getting way above themselves, and the next thing they think they can do is marry us. Jim, how can you hate Hitler so bad and then turn around and be ugly about folks right here at home? Jim was suddenly furious. He leaped off the bed, grabbed me by the collar, and shook me. I never want to hear about that courthouse again, ever, ever. You hear me? You hear me? Don't you ever say one word to me about it again. You hear? Now go on. I was too surprised to cry. I crept from Jim's room and shut the door softly. Lest undue noise set him off again. Suddenly tired, I wanted Atticus. He was in the living room, and I went, in, went to him and tried to get in his lap. He smi Atticus smiled. You're getting so big now. I'll just have to hold a part of you. He held me close. Scouty said softly, don't let Jim get you down. He's having a rough time these days. I heard you back there. Atticus said that Jim was trying, to trying hard to forget something, but what he was really doing was strong in a way for, storing it away for a while until enough time passed. Then he'd be able to think about it and sort things out. When he was able to think about it, Jim would be himself again. All right, that's the end of chapter 26. I will read 27 next. All right, here we go with chapter 27 on page 247. <clears throat> things did settle down after a fashion as Atticus said they would. By the middle of October, only two small things out of the ordinary happened to two make them citizens. No, there were three things, and they did not directly concern us, the Finches, but in a way they did. The first thing was that Mr. Bob Yule acquired and lost a job in a matter of days and probably made himself unique in the annals of the 1930s. He was the only man I ever heard of who was fired from the WPA for laziness. I suppose his brief burst of fame brought on a briefer burst of industry, but his job lasted only as long as his notoriety. Mr. Yule found himself as forgotten as Tom Robinson. Therefore, he resumed his regular weekly appearances at the welfare office for his check and received it with no grace amid obscure mutterings that the bastards who thought they ran this town wouldn't permit an honest man to make a living. <clears throat> Ruth Jones, the welfare lady, said Mr. Yule openly accused Atticus of getting his job. She was upset enough to walk down to Atticus's office and tell him about it. Atticus told Mrs. Ruth not to fret, that if Bob Yule wanted to discuss Atticus's getting his job, he knew the way to the office. So Yule thinks that Atticus got him fired from this job that he had gotten. The set, second thing that happened, the second thing happened to Judge Taylor. Judge Taylor was not a Sunday night churchgoer, as Mrs. Taylor was. Judge Taylor savored his Sunday night hour alone in his big house, and church time found him holed up in his study reading the writings of Bob Taylor, no kin. But the judge would have been proud to claim him. One Sunday night, lost in fruity metaphors and florid diction, Judge Taylor's attention was wrenched from the page by an irritating scratching noise. Hush, he said to Ann Taylor, his fat, nondescript dog. Then he realized he was speaking to an empty room. The scratching noise was coming from the rear of the house. Judge Taylor clumped to the back porch and let, to let Ann out and found the screen door swinging open. A shadow on the corner of the house caught his eye, and that was all he saw of the visitor. Miss Taylor, Mrs. Taylor came home from church to find her husband in his chair, lost in the writings of Bob Taylor with a shotgun across his lap. The third thing happened to Helen Robinson, Tom's widow. If Mr. Yule was forgotten as, as forgotten as Tom Robinson, Tom Robinson was as forgotten as Boo Radley. But Tom was not forgotten by his employer, Mr. Link Diaz. Mr. Link Diaz made a job for Helen. <clears throat> he didn't really need her, but he said he felt right bad about the way things had turned out. I never knew who took care of her, the ch her children while Helen was away. Calpurnia said it was hard on Helen because she had to walk nearly a mile out of her way to avoid the Yules, who, according to Helen, chunked at her the first time she tried to use the public road. Mr. Link Diaz eventually received that impression that Helen was coming to work each morning from the wrong direction, 
and dragged the reason out of her. Just let it be, Mr. Link, please, sir, Helen begged. The hell I will, said Mr. Link. He told her to come by his store that afternoon before she left. She did, and Mr. Link closed his store, put his hat firmly on his head, and walked Helen home. He walked her the short way by the Yules. On his way back, Mr. Link stopped at the crazy gate. Yule, he cried. I said Yule. The windows, normally packed with children, were empty. I know every last one of you's in there lying on the floor. Now, hear me, Bob Yule. If I hear one more peep out of my girl, Helen, about not being able to walk on this road, I'll have you in jail before sundown. Mr. Link spat in the dust and walked home. Helen went to work the next morning and used the public road. Nobody chunked at her, but when she was a few yards beyond the Yule house, she looked around and saw Mr. Yule walking behind her. She turned and walked on, and Mr. Yule kept the same distance behind her until she reached Mr. Link Diaz's house. All the way to the house, Helen said she heard a soft voice behind her, crooning foul words. Thoroughly frightened, she telephoned Mr. Link at his store, which was not too far from his house. As Mr. Mr. Link came out of the store, he saw Mr. Yule leaning on the fence. Mr. Yule said, don't you look at me, Link Diaz, like I was dirt. I ain't jumped your... First thing you can do, Yule, is get your stinking carcass off my property. You're leaning on it, and I can't afford fresh paint for it. Second thing you can do is stay away from my cook, or I'll have you up for assault. I ain't touched her, Link Diaz, and I ain't about to go with no black woman. You don't have to touch her. All you have to do is make her afraid. And if assault ain't enough to keep you locked up a while, I think I'll get you in on the ladies' law. So get out of my sight. If you don't think I mean it, just bother that girl again. Mr. Yule evidently thought he meant it, for Helen reported no further trouble. I don't like it, Atticus. I don't like it at all, Anne Alexandra's assessment of these events. That man seems to have a permanent running grudge against everybody connected with that case. I don't, I know how hard, I know that kind, I'm sorry. I know that how that kind are about paying off grudges, but I don't understand why he should harbor one. He had his way in court, didn't he? I think I understand, said Atticus. It might be because he knows in his heart that very few people in Maycomb really believed his and Mayella's yarns. He thought he'd be a hero, but all he got for his pain was, was okay, we'll convict this guy, but get back it to your dump. He'd had his fling with it about everybody now, so he'd ought to be satisfied. He'll settle down when the weather changes. But why should he try to burgle John Taylor's house? He obviously didn't know John was home, or he wouldn't have tried. Only lights John shows on Sunday nights are on the front porch on his back den. His den. You don't know if Bob Yule cut that screen. You don't know who did it, Staticus. But I can guess I proved him a liar. But John made him look like a fool. All the time Yule was on the stand, I couldn't dare look at John and keep a straight face. John looked at him as if he were a three-legged chicken or a square egg. Don't tell me judges don't try to prejudice juries. Atticus chuckled. By the end of October, our lives had become the familiar routine of school, play, study. Jim seemed to have put out of his mind whatever it was he wanted to forget, and our classmates mercifully let us forget our father's eccentricities. Cecil Jacobs asked me one time if Atticus was a radical. When I asked Atticus, Atticus was so amused I was rather annoyed, but he said he wasn't laughing at me. He said, you tell Cecil I'm about as radical as Cotton Tom Heflin. And Alexandra was thriving. Miss Maudie must have silenced the whole missionary society at one blow, for Auntie again ruled the ro that roost. Her refreshments grew even more delicious. I learned more about the poor Maruna's social life from listening to Miss Merriweather. They had so little sense of family that the whole tribe was one big family. A child had as many fathers as there were men in the community, as many mothers as there were women. 
Jay Grimes Everett was doing the utmost to change the state of affairs and desperately needed our prayers. Maycomb was itself again, precisely the same as last year and the year before that, with only two minor changes. Firstly, people have moved from their store windows and automobiles the stickers that said, NRA, we do our part. I asked Atticus why, and he said it was because the National Recovery Act was dead. I asked who killed it. He said nine old men. The second change in Maycomb since last year was not one of national significance. Until then, Halloween in Maycomb was a completely unorganized affair. Each child did what he wanted to do, with assistance from other children if there was anything to be moved, such as placing a light buggy on top of the lively, library stable. But parents thought things went too far last year, when the peace of Miss Tootie and Miss Fruity were shattered. Miss Tootie and Miss and Fruity Barber were maiden ladies, sisters, who lived together in the only Maycomb residence boasting a cellar. The Barber ladies were rumored to be Republicans, having migrated from Clanton, Alabama in 1911. Their ways were strange to us, and why they wanted a cellar nobody knew. But they wanted no one. I'm sorry, they wanted one, and they dug one. And they spent the rest of their lives chasing generations of children out of it. Mrs. Tootie and Fruity, their names were Sarah and Francis, aside from their Yankee ways, were both deaf. Miss Tootie denied it and lived in a world of silence. But Miss Fruity, not about to miss anything, employed her ear trump, an ear trumpet so enormous that Jem declared it was a loudspeaker from one of those dog Victrolas. Victrolas. With these facts in mind and Halloween at hand, some wicked children had waited until Miss, Mrs. Barber were thoroughly asleep, slipped into their living room, nobody but the Radleys locked up at night, stealthily made away with every stick of furniture therein and hid it in the cellar. I deny having taken a part in such a thing. I heard him, was the cry that awoke Mrs. Barber, Barber's neighbors down the next, at dawn the next morning. Heard him drive a truck up to the door, stomped around like horses. They're in New Orleans by now. Miss Tootie was sure those traveling fur sellers who came through town two dark days ago had purloined their furniture dark they were she said syrians mr hectate was summoned he surveyed the area and said he thought it was a local job miss fruity said she'd know a make em voice anywhere and there was no make em voices in the parlor last night ruling their r's all over her premises they were nothing less than the bloodhounds must be used to locate their furniture Miss Tootie insisted, so Mr. Tate was obliged to go ten miles out the road, round up the county hounds, and put them on the trail. Mr. Tate started them off at Mrs. Barber's front steps, but all they did was run around to the back of the house and howl at the cellar door. When Mr. Tate set them in motion three times, he finally guessed the truth. By noontime that day, there was not a barefooted child to be seen in Maycomb, and nobody took off his shoes until the hounds were returned. So the Maycomb ladies said things would be different this year. The high school auditorium would be open. There would be a pageant for the grown-ups, apple, bob, apple, apple bobbing, taffy pulling, pinning the tail on the donkey for children. There would be also be a prize of 25 cents for the best Halloween costume created by the wearer. Jem and I both groaned. Not that we'd ever done anything. It was a, the principle of the thing. Jem considered himself too old for Halloween anyway. He said he wouldn't be caught anywhere near the high school at, the, at something like that. Oh, well, I thought Atticus would take me. I soon learned, however that my services would be required on the stage that evening. Miss Grace Merriweather had composed an original pageant entitled Makeham County, Ad Astra Paraspra, and I was to be a ham. You guys remember the ham costume? Here it is. She thought it would be adorable if some of the children were costumed to represent the county's agricultural products. <clears throat> Cecil Jacobs would be dressed up to look like a cow. Agnes Boone would be making a lovely butter bean. Another child would be a peanut. And on down the line until Miss Merriweather's imagination and the supply of children were exhausted. Our only duties, as far as I could gather from our two rehearsals, <clears throat> were to enter from stage left as Miss Merriweather, not only the author, but the narrator. 
identified us. When she called out pork, that was my cue. Then the assembled company would sing, make them county, make them county. We will I to be true to thee. <laughs> and the, as the grand finale and Miss Merriweather would mount the stage with the state flag. My costume was not much of a problem. Mrs. Crenshaw, the local seamstress, had as much imagination as Miss Merriweather. Miss Crenshaw took some chicken wire and bent it into the shape of a cured ham. This is exactly how I made this costume. Then she covered it with brown cloth. Well, I did mine with newspaper and painted it to resemble the original. I could duck under and someone would pull the con contraption down over my head. It came almost to my knees. Mrs. Crenshaw thoughtfully left two peepholes for me. She did a fine job. Jem said I looked exactly like a ham with legs. There were several discomforts though. It was hot. It was a close fit. If my nose itched, I couldn't scratch. And once inside, I could not get out if, if, if alone of it alone. So I hope you guys remember trying that costume on and feeling those exactly the same things she's feeling. When Halloween came, I assumed that the whole family would be present to watch me perform, but I was disappointed. Atticus said as tactfully as he could that he just didn't think he could stand a pageant tonight. He was all in. He had been in Montgomery for a week and had come home late that afternoon. He thought Jim might escort me if I asked him. And Alexandra said she just had to get to bed early. She'd been decorating the stage all afternoon and was worn out. She stopped short in the middle of her sentence. She closed her mouth and then opened to say something, but no words came. What's the matter, Auntie? I asked. Oh, nothing, nothing, she said. Somebody just walked over my grave. She put away from her whatever it was that gave her a pinprick of apprehension and suggested that I give the family a preview of the living room, in the living room. So Jem squeezed me into my costume, stood at the living room door and called out, Pork! Exactly as Miss Merriweather would have done. And I marched in. Atticus and Alexandra were delighted. I repeated my part for Calpurnia in the kitchen, and she said it was, I was wonderful. I wanted to go across the street to show Miss Maudie, but Jem said she'd probably be at the pageant anyway. After that, it didn't matter whether they went or not. Jem said he would take me. Thus began our longest journey together. Okay, we are leading into the most, uh, this is what everything is building up to. This is going to be the climax in the next chapter. So um, when we get back from spring break, um, and we are back in school together finally, we'll be reading the last four chapters of this book. Um, and then we'll watch the movie, take a test, all that kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, that's it for now. I love you guys and I miss you so much. All right. Bye.